0: sound design show me how you assign something to the different outputs and i just want to see what that is and how that works on your console and so when i saw digicos i was like well, are you kidding me that is so backwards sound design
1: welcome to sound design live the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by freelance front of house engineer for such artists as Barry Manilow, Chris Isaac, Julio Iglesias, Anita Baker and Shirley MacLaine, Ken Newman. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Going good, thanks for being here. Ken, I definitely wanna talk to you about the definition of good sound, choosing the right digital console and vocal reverb. But before I do that, After you get a sound system set up, what's one of your favorite pieces of music to play through it to (laughs) get familiar with
0: it? That's an interesting question. I have a couple songs these days that I I can use just one song if I want. I have a whole list of about 30 songs that I've been using for many years. But my, my sort of favorite recording to listen to is a Sting recording of all things called Seven Days. That seven days thing has the kick drum nice and the hi-hat's a little overdone, and I know exactly how it's supposed to sound for me to have a successful sounding show. And that's the key. I could be almost anything as long as it I know what it's supposed to sound like. Then there's another song that's an Eagles track called How Long, and that thing has an overemphasized kick drum. Like they must have mixed it without subwoofers or something, and the kick drum is big and fat. If I know that if that song doesn't have the big fat kick drum, then I don't have enough low end dialed into the system. And, and it also has a, what sounds to me, a like a remote recorded in the early days of the internet uh, vocal or something. I'm not that early days. It sounded like they, were, they did one of these vocal overdubs over the internet because the one vocal sounds very low res. When I can detect that it's low res, I know that the system is doing what I expect it to do. And and, But, you know, I have different songs for different parts of the system. There's an Annie Lennox track that a friend of mine in England turned me on to years ago that I can't remember the name of right now. But it has a bass line that goes from, as he described it, from the upper system to the subs, upper system sum. It goes boom, boom, and it repeats that through the whole song. So you can get your balance from your main system to your subs pretty accurately if you know what that's supposed to sound like for you. And then I recently added another track to my repertoire of tracks called Angel from, I don't even know the band, name of the band, but it's uh, some you know, heavy metal-ish band or something. But this track has so much low end on the track somehow and hardly any top end. It just really makes the subs go. And I figure if that if I can make the subs go with that track and, and feel it the way I'm used to feeling it, I'm in the right direction at least. Ultimately, I play... Uh, multi-track of the night, the previous night's uh, show, and at least listen to the band part of that. And if it sounds right to me, then I know I'm in the right uh, range of EQ and system configuration.
1: Ken, how do I get more gigs?
0: What <laughs> would you
1: do if you were in my shoes? What what are have you found that works?
0: I'm no one to ask about that because I don't have that many gigs, but I somehow have managed to make a career out of this and just keep working for the last so many years. Uh, aside from the COVID. Okay. Don't give uh, up. Got it. Number one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. My my basic feeling about getting gigs, do the right thing as in show up early, be ready to work. Don't, you know, take a lot of breaks. Don't be the one that wants to leave all the time you know, have a good work ethic, pay attention to the pr- people you're working with. Because if I know some people that sound people that just simply are reliable in terms of showing up, And they get a lot of gigs just because they show up on time and they have a good attitude and nothing bothers them. And they could be the, pardon the expression, but they could be the worst sound person ever, but, and they're not by the way, but they could be that. And they, as long as they show up and they have a good attitude and they're like, yeah, sure, I can do that. Yeah, sure. I can do that. A good positive attitude, a good work ethic. They're honest, they're determined. They, they put themselves in the, in the shoes of the person hiring them. They're going to get called back a lot. That's some of the things that make people get gigs, in my opinion. Me personally, I have a good work ethic. All right, I've been told I have a good work ethic. That is, I like to work hard, and my I, my determination to have a good, successful, good-sounding gig, whatever kind of gig it is, is pretty great. In other words, uh, people say, "Wow, you're really into the sound." I'm like, "Yeah, that's what I do. I want it. I want it to be great, so I'm going to do everything I can." to make it great. And sometimes they misinterpret my drive for greatness as being a jerk, but I'm trying not to be a jerk. I'm trying to just make the most of the situation and get it to sound as good as possible. And so you're walking that fine line between being cocky and confident is key and good, good work ethics so that you prove to people that you are somebody they want to hire back. You know,
1: It always makes me laugh that As sound engineers, we are kind of obsessed with training and technology and learning about physics and microphones and plugging things in and making all the thing work and like getting this control. And then once we get into the field, when I'm sitting there doing the job, I'm always like, oh, so much of this is like, can I still be nice to this client after I've been here for 14 hours?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And be determined to please them no matter what it takes. Yeah. So
1: much about attitude. So, okay. Don't yeah. give up. Um, Do good work. Right. Um, Is there anything else I can do to get more gigs?
0: Of course, networking is key. I'm not How do good I do at networking. That? I, you don't, I, don't my, know? I don't know either. <laughs> philosophy is get as many contacts as you can. I have a list of people. I have a list that I, when I'm looking at my calendar and it's not very full, I go, hmm, I think it's time to send that email again. And I send a mass email to a bunch of people. And I say, my calendar is wide open in this time period. Try to make it as polite, not begging as possible. In other words, I'm not begging for work. I don't ever want to be begging, but I don't want to be so cocky. They say, no, I'm busy all the time. Some people are busy all the time and good for them. That's fantastic that they just don't even have to send out that email ever or make those phone calls or send those text messages, however you wanna communicate with people or works for you or the situation. But for me, it's email because it's non-invasive. Like if you send a text message or f- call them on the phone, you might be catching that amount of bad time. And so if you send an email and you make it polite and just to the point, and by the way, my calendar for May is wide open. I'm just putting it out there. Like I sent one recently because I had heard from some uh, clients that it was hard to find good people these days because of the whole uh, mass resignation that's happened during the lockdown. And so I sent out an email to a bunch of potential clients, people that I had worked for in the past and said, I've heard that it's hard to find people. So I just wanted to let you know, I'm ready, willing, and able, and my ears still work. and, and, um, And I've got all the same equipment that I had before, and I'm anxious to work with you again. I got some got some response to that and got some gigs from that. So for me, that work, everybody's different in terms of your rapport with other uh, people and clients, but networking is key. Not letting people know that you're available. Because I, personally, I, I get this impression that people think I'm busy all the time, and so they're not even gonna call me. And so that's why I send out those emails because I wanna let them know that, hey, by the way, I'm not busy all the time. I'm busy sometimes, but I would love to fill in the gaps so that I make the rent okay.
1: I think the success you've had with that is a reflection of the fact that Pro Audio runs on personal referral. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. We've talked about I've talked about that a lot in my workshops. And that's what I talk with people about when I do career coaching. You, know, you can't expect that you meet people once and then every time they're looking for someone, they go through and try to find the best person for the job. It's not a meritocracy. People are not searching for the best qualifications they are typically thinking of the person that they talk to last. And you can get upset about that or you can just use that to your advantage and go and talk right. to them last. <laughs> be, be, be that, that person. Be, that's not and, and, and
0: there's that whole, that old saying, uh, be the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And you know, sometimes that's true because I've been in touch with somebody about something and I'm nicely. I nicely don't want to be the annoying one, but if you nicely keep in touch with somebody and then boom, you magically you get that gig, just like you just said.
1: Yeah. Yep. One of the most common things I do with people when we do career coaching stuff is they're going over their workflow with me and often people will say something like you said, which is when my calendar gets thin or when it seems like I don't have enough gigs, then this is what I do. And one really easy modification that I make with people that makes a big change is to take that thing that they do only when they get to the famine in the feast and famine cycle and do that regularly. So you systematize it and do it like once a month or once a week or something like that instead of just every six months when you start to get to that lull again. And then you kind of develop this process where you're constantly reminding people instead of just every once in a
0: while when you go, get the fear, get the and, fear. And that, and that definitely works. I have proof of that okay, because there's tell me a, about friend, a friend of mine that's a, a, a sound engineer by the name of Bruce. And Bruce not only keeps his calendar available online but he sends out that email like once a month and it's always got the same subject line, which is gigging with you or something like that. (laughs) And he just wants to keep us informed. I remember when I worked at, when I worked at World Stage um, for, I was a staff person there, we would get his email every month and it would just be just a reminder, I'm available. Here's my calendar. And it's just a link to his calendar. It shows his availability, shows when he's working and when he's not. Very good. The guy works all the time. So that must work, That's what I figure. So that is great advice. And you follow the Bruce Fallis method of getting gigs and you'll be working all the time.
1: I like that. Yeah, do something similar. And I guess where I have found it challenging is when people don't write back. So if I'm emailing maybe six to eight people a month, letting them know about my availability and they don't write back, I start to think, well, they don't like me anymore and I'm a bad person. And I should stop this and they don't care about me anymore. So what do you think of about that? Of course you think
0: that it's not necessarily the case because we all think that we all think, yeah, I must've made them angry at me. I better stop this, but no, if you're, as long as your the tone of your email or text message or whatever it is, is friendly and light and it, it's, it doesn't take a five minutes to read it. Nobody can have anything bad to say about that.
1: That's just fine. I guess the key is that they're not saying no. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. always gonna when I have fear, I'm always gonna think of the worst case scenario. But it could right. be anything. Like they're busy, well. whatever. They're getting the email, they're saying, Great, Nathan's available. They don't I'm not asking for a response. So it could be a lot of things going. On there feel- okay thanks ken let me know if anything else comes to mind for you well, that so, this... so so go ahead so
0: i should back up and tell you that back in, in the old days when a1 audio existed that was how i got gigs was i just stayed in touch with the a1 audio people if you're in a click and that click happens to be a sound company or a, a any kind of vendor or even just a bunch of guys you just keep letting those people know oh by the way my My May is all wide open, or my June, or my, I'd love to do something with you in the summer, what have you, whatever it is, you, you just make sure they know. And that's all, it's just about, it doesn't take much to make sure they know that your calendar is not filled as, as much as you want it to be. And they, like when I was with A1 Audio, I was always working because there was always something that they had me doing. And that's how I got all the gigs back then. I, frankly, I kind of miss that because... I haven't been connected to any other sound company since then, and that was a good source of career advancement, of move from sure. one artist to another. Some people have the appearance, some sound engineers that I know have the appearance that they work for a particular sound company, but they actually don't. They're freelance, but they work so closely with those companies that it appears they work for the sound company, but they're actually freelance because, and that, anyway, and that keeps them busy is the point.
1: It's funny how things stay the same. You know, that was before Google. We have Google now, but clients don't Google sound engineer when they need someone. They call somebody that they know. And so you want to be connected to those people that are getting those calls, just typically the AV companies and sound
0: companies. Put yourself in their position. Make yourself be the person that they want to hire for the next gig. When you're doing a job or something, realize that, okay, I want to make sure I impress this person that I'm in- interested in pleasing them and keeping everything the way they want it to be. Whatever, it, whatever their priorities are, are my priorities now. Whether it's the budget or whether the, how long it takes to set up or how good the sound is, what have you, they have priorities and get yourself in line with those priorities because I want to be the one that they say, oh, you know, we have this new gig coming up. I want to hire that guy because he's good at it you know, whatever their priorities are. That's a large part of it, is being being that person that they think of first. That's great. Ken,
1: you've been mixing for a while. You've also been around other people mixing and working together. What are one or two of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to front of house mixing?
0: Well, I did this gig a while ago and I was surprised that I was the system tech on the gig. In other words, I was the front of house assistant, let's say. And I, and it was a young person mixing for this, the artist's friend or what have you. And all they did was came right in. They hardly looked at the console. They hardly looked at the stage setup. They definitely did not listen to the sound system. They just started pushing up faders. And I was like, that's interesting. Number one, they didn't look at mic placement. Number two, they didn't look at, listen to the system. And that to me, the listening to the system before you start doing stuff is key. Now, sometimes that's not possible. I get it. But when, you, when it's possible, the first thing I would do if I was approaching a gig and I was just told, you're going to mix, okay, this is all you're doing is mixing. You're just showing up and mixing. First thing I want to do is listen to the sound system. See if it sounds the way I expect it to sound. And if it doesn't sound that way, get it to sound that way or as close as I can so that I'm working with the right palette. In other words, my tool is the way I expect my tool to be. Because if you start just pushing up faders and you're like, oh, there's the kick drum. Oh, that sounds good. Okay, cool. Let's do the snare drum. Oh, that sounds good. And then you get to the vocal and you realize, oh shoot, the sound system just doesn't sound right. Now I need to add stuff to the vocal and it's on. oh, it's going to sound all messy. Oh, yeah, everybody
1: just, take 10. I got to work on the sound system now. <laughs>
0: it's just, you're just going to get yourself in trouble basically is what I'm saying. And so I was surprised that that was what some people do these days. It's just now granted sound systems are so good these days and system techs are generally so good these days. You can pretty much trust that it's going to be pretty good, but maybe not. You should really listen to the system first and then start mixing. And by listening to the system, whether it's something as simple as your voice, your voice with reverb on it, or plug in your iPod and listen to your phone or what have you and play some, play some music, knowing what that source is supposed to sound like, your voice is supposed to sound like, you know what the reverb is supposed to sound like, You, you something that you know how it's supposed to sound, and you get, get the system to sound that way, especially if you're in the position to do that. If it's a festival where you're not allowed to make the system sound the way you want it to sound. Well, there's another story, but if, when you're allowed to change it, that, that's the first thing I would do. And that's what I would see say is one of the mistakes. The other thing, mic placement, if you can get to the stage and make sure that your mics are in the place that you know is going to work for you, uh, some key instruments like snare drum, kick drum, the mic placement can make all the difference in the world, percussion instruments, The uh, mic placement can be very drastically different depending on where you put that mic you could go on and on with the things that people may or may not do one of the main things is just listen closely really listen closely and know what you're know what you're shooting for if you're if it's your first gig with a new situation new client new performer what have you just make it sound good to you and go from there
1: Ken, at last year's live sound summit you gave a great talk called what is good sound. And I just want to take a moment to thank you again for filling in for some time. We had a really strange moment at that at that summit where for the first time we had someone who didn't show up. And it turned out that they actually had a serious medical situation. And I talked to the person later and they're, I, they're fine now. But you stuck around and you told some great stories. So if people want to hear that whole thing, they can go to live summit 2021.soundsoundlive.com and look for Ken's presentation called What's Good Sound. One of the main arguments you make there is that good sound, we can all agree, is the absence of bad sound. You share some great demos about this is what a good mix is and this is what a bad mix is. These are good sounds, bad sounds. And you have some great photos to go along with that. But to dig into that a little bit and give people a taste of your thinking on this idea, I'd like to ask you, how do I make my client happy? How do I know what good sound is for them? And maybe, maybe this question doesn't have a clear answer. I think I've actually mentioned this in the past. I'm going to tell the story again, helping a friend with a system install at a church. We set it up and my friend was the responsible party, set it up the way that made them happy. The client was not there. So they were not able to like actually sit down with the client. The client comes in later and says, I don't like it. So, they have to send someone back out. And all that person basically does is resets the sound system, basically just loads the standard presets and for the speakers. And then the client's like, okay, I like this now. Two different people doing it two different ways. But is there any way we can predict that? How do I go about this process of figuring out what makes my client happy and keeping my job?
0: That particular situation must have been tough because the client wasn't there. So, you didn't have the opportunity to bounce any ideas off them or anything. But my general way of dealing with it is start out by feeling them out in terms of what they listen to, what kind of music they listen to, what kind of concerts they've been to that they like the sound of. But having that conversation is key to that. And so if you are, you didn't have your client there and couldn't have that conversation, that's tough. Everybody has a somewhat different perception of what is sounds good. So that's the basic premise, knowing that is, is the starting point. And then you go, what are they going to want it to sound like? If you have encountered situations in the past where you make it sound good for yourself, and then somebody comes along and says, oh, no, that's no good. It's this, or it's that. And they use all these interesting terms to describe it. Maybe it's your perception of what good is, is a little off. On the other hand, if you're always getting comments that, wow, it sounds great when you do the sound, well, then you're probably in the right neighborhood, right? So the, and then again, just like in any situation, you put yourself in their shoes. If you're doing a church situation or a conservative band or what have you, and it's, you go, well, what are they going to, what are they trying to imagine what they being conservative and they listen to certain kind of music, what they're going to, and try to anticipate their needs or their, their want when it comes to that. And if you can have that conversation with them, ask them what kind of music they listen to, you could even get into the, you know, the sound conversation, which is tough to do because people have different terms for describing things. But that's why I feel I've been successful with some of the people that I work with is they talk in the same terms that I talk. In other words, I worked for Barry Manilow for a long time, for example, and he can say I want it to have more magic and I know exactly what he's talking about. And, and I've heard stories about certain performers saying, oh, it needs to sound more green. It's so blue. Okay. (laughs) Now to me, I wouldn't know where to go with that. But if you can, if you as a sound person feel that and can feel like, oh yeah, of course I know what to do when they say it sounds too green or it sounds too blue or whatever. Wait, so what does magic mean? Oh, magic in, in the case of Barry Manilow is mostly related to a reverb and effects. So that's what adds the magic to it in his world, in his mind. Because in other words, you listen to a dry mix with no effects on it, that's dry and not so good, but add some magic, add some life to it. That's, that's what he considers the magic. And he has different terms for different things. That's things that sound messy. That means that maybe it has too much reverb or it's too or the band isn't playing in, in uh, very tightly that messy can mean a few different things but anyway the, each person has their own vocabulary when it comes to sound as we know as sound people vocabulary of the person you're working with is key if they happen to use the same vocabulary that you use like the rational acoustics chart that shows all the different dwarves the system dwarves and those words the names of the dwarves you know, like tubby and boomy and things like that are often words that people use to describe the sound. And some, one person can say boomy and mean one thing, and another person can say boomy and mean a totally different thing. And and it's like, wow, really? So anyway, and being in touch with their vocabulary and knowing what they mean when they say a certain thing is the thing that makes for success yeah it sounds Um, like
1: ideally if i could sit down with them and listen to some music with them even on the sound system that we're going to use if if we're talking about a perfectly ideal situation we sit down in that room we listen to something and i say, what is it about this that you like and then they even point out some things and so then i have the opportunity to just ask them directly what is good sound
0: then then what i try to do sometimes is be like the eye doctor you ever go to an eye doctor you get the eye test is this better or is that better? Is this better or is that better? Give them the choices of, do you like this? Do you like that? Give them a little 2K boost. Give them a little 4K boost. Is this better or that better? You know, whatever works for them. And you start to get in touch with their, their likes and desires. And then you are going to really hone it in really nicely. And if you're doing monitors, that's key because you really want it to sound there, you want their mix to sound the way they want it to sound, whether it's in an EQ way or a balanced way, really knowing exactly what they want and being able to interpret their vocabulary is key. But it's tough if your client isn't there in your case where you had it sounding one way and it sounded good to you guys, and then. The client comes in and says, no, that doesn't sound right. Where do you even start when they just say it doesn't sound right? They have to be a little more defined. It's talk about sure. it. Sure. Tell me more. Right? Is yeah. it, is it echoing? Is it maybe being too loud? Is it too boomy? Is it too harsh? Is it too anything? And, or do you just, just don't like it and we should just start over again and throw the sound system out? There's so many, so many variables and so many ways to describe them. That's what makes it very uh, challenging. And I feel that when you find that client that you have the same vocabulary with and can relate to what they're saying, that's a great fit. And frankly, uh, frankly, remember that it's important to remember that other things happening in people's lives can affect how it sounds. In other words, they could be just having a bad day. And nothing's gonna. Then nothing's gonna please them. So you turn it on, and you, they say, "Sounds great." And they go, "I'm not feeling it," and they're just not feeling it because they're having a bad day, not because it sounds bad. You could turn that on the next day after they had their cup of coffee and they had a beautiful lunch, and they're like, "Oh, that sounds lovely." It could be the <laughs> same exact thing. Yes, sound for you. Right? I know you so, have, a, and that's I know perception. You have a perception sorry
1: to interrupt you I know you have a funny story about Julio Iglesias having a bad day related to bad, <laughs> right. good sound
0: we're in a in, a, in an, an arena in some far east area Singapore maybe anyway and, uh, and I'm out at the mixed position getting the sound system together maybe doing a sound check or something and Julio walks in by the backstage door and shouts at me across the arena he just <laughs> shouts at me at the top of his lungs I'm like Kenny you must help me I have not had sex in 48 hours hey <laughs> I'm like, okay, Julio, I got you covered. So <laughs> that's so For you, that
1: that's the vocabulary. Yeah. That translated to mixed decisions for you. I'm gonna make you sound good. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna to me that means like plenty of reverb on his voice. Make sure his voice isn't too harsh sounding, make sure that everything is just right so that he can exist even though he's not comfortable. So there's that. Now I and I could did I tell you the Paul Anka story? I'm not sure I should I don't tell remember. you. This, and you might wanna you might wanna cut this out. Okay but I'll clean it up, frankly, for TV here. But <laughs> do a have young
1: limits. I don't know why you need to clean it up.
0: <laughs> because it was offensive to me and the people in the room when he said what he said. But I went, okay, you have that discussion with your cl- new client. So I'm a new kid. I'm 20-something years old. And my other friends that are 30-something years old are already working on the show. And they're not being successful with the sound. And so I'm the new kid on the Paul Anka show in Las Vegas in 1983 or something. And... He, he it was the show was not so great, so he does what he usually does, which is go around the room and tell ask everybody w- what they did wrong and why, and, and he just wants to be, uh, object of the exercise is basically to to not have it happen again. But he does it in the way that he was accustomed to doing it at the time, which wasn't so friendly. So anyway, he comes to me and he said, "And you're the new kid here. Uh, what did you think of the way it sounded?" And I said, which I would always say at the time, Mr. Anka, I don't know what you like it to sound like. So tell me, what do you like it to sound like? What kind of sound do you like? Do you like it bright? Do you like it dull? Do you like it bassy? Do you, how do you like the sound to sound? So he gets right up in my face. And he's, and by the way, he's you know much shorter than me. So he had to get up on his, on his tippy toes to say, I want to orgasm when I hear myself sing. <laughs> okay, Mr. Anka, <laughs> that goes, that goes, It's almost as good as the Holy Iglesias thing, right? But that was his first thing he ever said to me. And we went on to have a great time many years together. But that was just my first dealing with him because I wanted to find out what he liked the sound of. And I should tell you that as crazy as that sounds, as crazy as that statement is, that he's relating singing to sex. But years later, after I had been the sound guy and then I became the production manager, and then he said, I'm going to bring Artie, his favorite sound guy, back to do the sound. Artie was doing the sound. And I swear, I talked on the microphone one day and I went, ah, there it is. That's what I, that I would have an orgasm if I was singing right now. (laughs) Get it. Because Artie had it so, because Artie, yeah, I I got it because Artie had it so amazing sounding. Even my voice just talking sounded like, oh my God, it sounded like so big and amazing that I felt like I was king of the world. And I was like, that, I get it. That's why he wanted it to sound like that. that. That only took, 10 years or something. But anyway, the point is, different people have different ways of expressing what they want. And if you can relate to what they're saying and you can be on the same page as them in terms of their terms with sound, fantastic. That's a successful working together environment. Sure.
1: That's probably the biggest thing that making our client happy, figuring out, getting on the same page with them, the same vocabulary, syncing up with them. We also have the audience to worry about. Do you have any tips for me about making the audience happy is there anything that you've seen over the years where it's like this kind of thing always makes people happy i don't know it's a weird question well, but. well
0: cer- certainly here's the thing certainly you don't want to do the bad sound things bad sound the first example of bad sound would be when you can't when you've got a band with a vocalist and you can't hear the vocalist because the band is too loud that's the most basic mistake a lot of people make. They're trying to make it sound like a record and they're trying to tuck that vocal in to the music a little bit. People don't care if the vocal is tucked in a little bit. They don't want to ever go, whoa, and they don't want to ever go, oh, what's he saying? They, they don't want to strain to hear the vocalist and they don't want to ever be attacked by the sound system. And if they can have fun, in other words, they if they can be comfortable listening to it, it, it in a perfect world, it, everybody in the audience would simply not even mention not even notice the sound system it would just be so Transparent, perfect yeah. that it would be it would just be happening it's just part of the thing that's happening and especially in, in a corporate environment the corporate environment the it's rare that a producer is going to come to you and say it doesn't sound this way or, it doesn't sound that way occasionally in a corporate environment they might come and say i can't hear that one guy he's not talking loud enough or can you turn his mic up or that kind of thing but Man, the window of acceptability in corporate environment, it, it seems to me to be pretty great and as long as everybody in the audience can hear the people talk and hear that when they do the video playback, it gets the impact that they want it to give. There's the window of acceptability though in, in corporate world, in terms of the mix is quite great, but the coverage is key. In other words, if you have, you know, if you have like cheap seats in the back where it's like, you got a strain to hear that's bad in corporate land, but In music, you could get away with that because it's like, hey, I know I bought the cheap seats, so I'm not going to hear as well as the people down on the floor or the people that are closer. But in corporate, you've got to make sure that everybody in the entire seating area hears everything perfectly. Otherwise, that corporate client is not going to be happy.
1: And in music, you might know the song already, and so you're sitting at the back and it's quiet. You're still singing along, but in corporate, like... What is the next
0: word they're going to say? You don't know, unless you have the script. (laughs) So speaking of singing along, that's one of my key things that I go for is I want those people to speak, to feel uninhibited enough to sing along. If, because like friends of mine that do sound, they'd make it really quiet. And I'm like, you can't have it that quiet. That can't be, uh, how are people going to sing along? there? Once they start singing, they're not going to hear the artist anymore. You've got to make it so that when you're singing along, you hear the artist over the singing along. That's my opinion. But, and I'm, you know, I've been pretty successful with that. Sure. So, so maybe that's a good opinion, but again, it's everybody's different. No, that's a great tip. But, it, it, and sometimes you can't do that because the artist just isn't giving it to you or you don't have a situation, specifically speaking, that you can do that. You don't have enough gain before feedback or something, but whenever you can, I'd say at least make it loud enough so that they can sing along uninhibited because that's what people go to concerts for is to sing along, even if it's just in their head. How do I respond to
1: complaints or an audience member (laughs) gives me notes and I'm in the middle of work, so I need to like acknowledge them, respond, and also make it go away so that I can keep doing my job. Right. Oh, I have the answer to that (laughs) one.
0: I know exactly where you're headed with that because that has happened plenty of times, it doesn't happen anywhere near as much recently. Like in the last say 10 years and used to happen frequently because the systems weren't nearly as good as they are now. But my basic approach to that, and who knows if it's successful or not, but is first, I want to be concerned. I want that person to know that I care. Then you can't just blow them off and go, hey, go away. I'm mixing here. If you do that, it's going to get worse. They're going to complain to management. They're going to get their money back. Management is going to ask for the, the your client for money back, et cetera, et cetera. It only gets worse. So if you're interested in doing a good job and, and having having your client like you, then you're going to go to that person and you're, going to say, oh, and you're going to be very concerned. And even if you're in the middle of the most strenuous, important part of the mix, Give me a second, Just be polite. You got to be polite there. They paid a lot of money. They went way out of their way to make it to that event, whatever that event is. And you need to let them know full on that you're concerned and you want to make them not concerned. You want to make them make, hear their complaint and, and know that it's valid because even if they're, even if it's not valid, you need to know, let them know that it is. Uh, so anyway, so the first thing I would do once I find a moment to get away from the faders, I'd say okay, where are you sitting? And what are you hearing? Because the, where are you sitting thing can be key. For example, it, I hate to say the number of times where I, I might have the front fill, the speaker's not loud enough. And so people come up running up to me from the front of the, you know, from right near the stage. And they say, we can't hear, we can't hear, we can hear it. It's, they'll say some weird thing, right? And I'll be like, okay. And then, so first of all, I say, okay, I'm going to fix that. And you make sure you, they know that you're interested in fixing it. And then If you have the luxury of having a system tech that you can send to that area where that person's having a problem, absolutely have that system tech, follow that person to where they're sitting and this, and you have to be able to trust your system tech, of course, and then your system tech will take care of it and fix it for you. Or if you don't have a system tech, you just have to believe that what that person is saying is correct because it is correct in their mind and it probably is true at least to, uh, to some degree. And then you make whatever corrections you think you have to make in order to achieve that. And then again, it's often, more often than not, it's gonna relate to the vocal. And so if you have to adjust your whole mix about that one person's complaint, let that person represent the whole audience and say, wow, really? Okay, the vocal is this or it's that, it's too sibilant. it's too, well, come on, just let's do it. Let's address that audience member as if they are the entire audience for a second and see if I can live with that because After all, the audience is the reason we're there, they pay our bill. They're the reason for doing these shows and you've got to make them be comfortable. If I'm an audience member, I want to uh, be treated a certain way. If I have a complaint about my seat or my, or the lights or the lasers or what have you, I'm going to have a comment about that or a complaint about that, I want to be treated fairly. And so the sa- I would treat that audience member that's coming to me now as the sound operator the same way that I would want to be treated if I had a complaint.
1: So where were you sitting? Where are you sitting and what are you hearing? And then another one I learned from you during the workshop last year, which is a little bit different, but is, thank think you all work on that. And that's more like when you're on your way to go and do something and someone yells something to you and you say, oh, great, thank you. I'll work on that. That's and You want to have yeah, less phrases sure. ready to go instead of so you're not Absolutely. like flustered and you're like, oh, uh,
0: uh, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the wrong answer. Yeah, you have to at least have a positive response to them so that they know they're important. Otherwise, you're going to hear about it. Uh, a few years ago, at a Barry Manilow concert in England. I was the recipient of an email from a customer, an audience member, after the fact, that was complaining about the sound and wanted their money back, basically. And so the promoter got the email from the customer, the audience member. And then forwarded to me and said, what do you say about this? And I was like, what show were they at? I just don't know what show where they were at because their complaint was, of course, the vocal wasn't loud enough. And I was like, the vocal was definitely on top. And here's a recording of the show here. I'll give you a three minute recording of the show right off the board. That's what came out of the speakers. Err, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I really, I want it to be, I want you to be happy. I want the sound to be good, comfortable for you, but here's what was coming out of the speakers and it sounds like the vocal is totally audible so not sure what you were hearing and i'm really sorry so, sure and you could do some more research
1: and say okay wh- what show where are you sitting specifically what were you hearing but you can't go oh, yeah, back in time. they had
0: that in the email they had that you in but the you email. can't go back in time but, yeah, and fix yeah. that
1: and so that's still that's no, one of those you can't situations fix it, so you just have to you want to make them happy yeah somehow. you just have
0: to make them happy as you can and you can't call them crazy but you can say I'm really sorry that you felt that way, but we were doing our best at the time to make sure that you were comfortable. And it's tough, it's really tough. Ken,
1: speaking of people complaining, would you be willing to share with us maybe one of your biggest
0: mistakes on a gig? Well, okay, so when I think of mistakes, I think of interaction with artists is the first thing that comes to mind, where I've maybe not interacted very smoothly with the artist. I'll be the first to admit that i'm pretty honest when it comes to dealing with people and so a lot of times the artists don't want to hear the absolute honest story they want to hear it sugarcoated. coated there's this rumor that went around with me uh, about me when i was working for engelbert and i was doing monitors for engelbert humperdinck and he's a great singer, but very fussy about his sound. And, and at the time, I think we were on speaker monitors. He's probably on ear monitors these days and stuff. He's much older these days. But the point is, the rumor was that he would come over, he had come over to me, uh, you need to spread the sound, Ken, you needs to be wider. And uh, And the rumor was I got a tape measure out and said, How wide do you want it? And put the tape measure on the console, something like that. And that that rumor might be true. I don't remember doing that, but there was something along those lines. And the reason they were saying it was because I tend to be more honest with the performers. And I tend to say, you want it to be wider? All right, let me see what I can do, but that's crazy. And and so the, but that's crazy part of that phrase, my response to him would be wrong. That would be just the, not the right thing to say. And I put my foot in my mouth too many times with performers doing that, but, but, uh, technically speaking, when I think of mistakes that I've done, technically, the only thing that comes to mind that really stuck with me since was this 1980 or something, I'm like in Atlantic city and I'm doing, I'm with a house guy at the Sands in Atlantic city. And we got a new microphone to try out. It's called a Sure SM 85. And it's this really beautiful sounding vocals mic, but it's got a ton of high end, ton of must have a rise that started at 4k and just took off because it was very bright and i was like wow that's really nice and bright and i we had this like singer that would play in our place frequently so i don't remember her name but she i said try this microphone with you and so i tried that microphone with her and i had my dbx 160 compressor it was the only compressor we had there and i compressed it too much to the point where after the show somebody came over to some audience member came over to me and said boy she really has a breathing problem huh And I was like, oh shoot, that was me. Because between the high end of the mic and that combined with a little bit too much compression, every time she would breathe, it was very accentuated. And I was like, oh shoot, that's me, man. I messed up, I gotta fix that. So less compression and roll off that high end a bit so that it's not quite so uh, so apparent. And so that was you know, one of those times when I went, oh, that's not good sound. And that's somebody from the audience is calling me out on it. And But they're not talk, calling it good sound, bad sound. They're just saying she has a breathing issue. And I'm like, I felt bad. I felt like I really represented her in, incorrectly and that was bad. Okay. So that stuck with me for many years. And I'd be care- I was always careful about that thing ever since then but it can happen you can make mistakes and and have something sound not the way you want it to sound
1: ken what's what makes a digital console right for me
0: coming from mixing on analog consoles for a long time and i'm sure every other person has their feelings about that based on their history or experience with consoles so for example for me how easy it is to get around that is Every digital console seems to require two or three or four button pushes to get to a certain place that I could have gotten to immediately on an analog console. Right, and so the less button pushes, the better in most situations. In other words, like in order to uh, EQ something in the old days, I just reached for the high end knob on whatever channel it is. Now I have to select the channel, then I have to then I have to go to that uh, high frequency, and maybe in some consoles I have to make it, make the EQ section go to the high frequency range in order to make that effect, to make that change happen. That's tedious. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like the console that has more knobs and more access all the time. And, what one friend of mine mentioned was if those controls don't change their function very much, that's even that much better. Hmm. In other words, if you have a knob that's labeled gain, it's all, if it's always gain, then that's great. Static control versus
1: dynamic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Versus, yeah, that, that can be really, but again, everybody's different. I see kids walk up to consoles and just, just like, they just can adapt to anything uh, quickly. I'm not as adaptable because I've been doing it for a while and I'm a little older. So I, my tendency is to go with things that I feel comfortable with. So I went through this whole process about 10 years ago, trying to select the right digital console for me to mix Barry Manilow's show on after having always mixed it on an analog console. And the thing that sold me on selecting the console I selected was that it was very analog in terms of its knob configuration. That was a VI6, gate- yeah, it was the Soundcraft series because those consoles had controls that made sense to me. And it, that's that was key. Now, it un- unfortunately, it didn't have as much capability as I needed in the long run. But it w- in the short run, it was really capable. And it's uh, the knobs were oriented in a way, and the, all the switches and everything, in a way that I felt comfortable using it. For example, one of the things that you do on an analog console that's really easy on an analog console is assigning VCAs. On uh, like a PM4000, you had eight push buttons next to every fader just to sign it. But every digital console (laughs) seems to have a different way to do it. And it can be more or less tedious to do. you and don't have anything digital... else
1: to do in your life besides go through manuals <laughs> and figure out how all these different consoles work.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> so the, so when I looked at well, these few consoles, I was like, okay, show me how you assign VCAs because that gives me a good indication of what kind of mindset the programmers that programmed this console were thinking, show me how you assign something to the different outputs. And I just want to see what that is and how that works on your console. And so when I saw Digico's, I was like, are you kidding me? That is so backwards. What? I got to go bring up a screen that says control groups and then tap on join leave. And then I got to find the channel that I want and make it that. Oh my God, really? You can't just assign it on the channel. No, you can't assign it on the channel. And the other thing is input patching. Some consoles are so much easier than others for input patching. It's so easy on, like, say, for instance, Yamaha consoles are really easy. And once you get used to it, it's easy on a lot of consoles, but it takes a little getting used to on some consoles because they're rather backwards-ish compared to what I've been accustomed to. But by the way, when it comes to digital consoles, Yamaha was one of the first, if not the first digital console manufacturer way back in the old days. They had the DMP7 and they had the ProMix 01 and they had this whole history of digital consoles. So I had used all those and they have continued to use the same basic mindset in terms of how you use their consoles as they've gotten bigger and better and more capable, the the Yamaha way, so to speak, is widely accepted because so many people have experienced some of their older mixers, but now the young kids coming up there, they just see all these different consoles. They all have different ways to do things and they just adapt. It seems quickly to each console. Personally, I'm not a fan of being a jack of all trades. I'd rather focus on two or three consoles that I know how to run really well, as opposed to running 10 consoles, just okay. That's <laughs> you know, it's just my preference. Yeah, yeah, that
1: makes sense. You're yeah. not running a AV company here. You are, you're the person in charge of making a really great mix.
0: That's the idea, yeah. You
1: want that one really sharp knife, not like 10 dull knives. (laughs) Ken, a a few follow-up questions here about Barry Manilow. You've talked about him a lot already, and you did a great interview over on the Signal Noise podcast, so shout out to them, and people should check out that episode. But I'm gonna ask you a couple more things about Barry Manilow. So first, I'm gonna read the clip from Front of House Magazine that says, in mixing this show, I have to make it sound exactly the way Barry wants it to, says Ken Newman, Front of House Engineer blah, blah, blah. Some artists leave the sound to their engineers. Barry is very involved in rehearsal and sound check, and will sit right next to me and tell me exactly how he wants to hear something. He's very particular about what should be heard because he put together many of the arrangements and wants the audience to feel the music the way intended to be felt. I've heard you talk about this a few times and so I don't need to hear that part of the story again. What I'm curious about is, um, I wanna know exactly how that went down. Can you remember <coughs> the words? How did the conversation go? And would you be able to recount that story?
0: Okay, so it's constant. So he's always wants to hear what the audience is going to hear. And he doesn't, I should qualify that and say, he doesn't sing standing next to me. The vo- His vocal is left to me, and he listens to a recording of the show and comments on that. But th- for the band mix and what the band should sound like for a given song, he stands next to me, and it's a standard procedure and always has been with him for forever, with every sound guy he's ever worked with. He stands next to the sound guy and says, "The this isn't right or that isn't right. Now, to get more particular about that, and I'll tell you a story. The first week I was working for him back in 1992, the light bulb moment for me was when he was doing this one song and he was standing next to me and the band was performing and the singers are singing and it's sounding, I thought it should sound, and he goes, Why are you being so cheap with the echo on the background singers? And I'm like, oh, okay. I get it. He wants more reverb on the background singers and that's his thing. Reverb, more reverb on everything will make him happy. And that was the light bulb moment for me that told me that reverb is key to him being happy. And of course the right kind of reverb for each situation. But anyway, that was one of the comments that he made to me many years ago. But these days he'll say things like just doesn't have the groove. That it has, and, he, and then he'll call the musical director, hey, Ron, does it, is it grooving on stage? And of course, Ron will say, oh, it's grooving. It's fantastic where we are. And he's like, it must be Ken then. Ken has to fix this. So, and then he brings Ron out to stand next to me also. He goes, what do you think is wrong with that? And they'll analyze, okay, why is it not grooving? You think maybe it needs a little more guitar? I think maybe it needs a little more. Does the bass not clear enough? Is the kick not kicking? And they'll analyze analyze it to death to make it be what he wants it to be. And then there's other times where he just sits there and goes, wow, it sounds great. And and that happened recently. (laughs) And the funny story recently was, he goes, man, it sounds so great here. Why can't I have that on stage? And I was like, that's another story. The way he wants his vocal to sound on stage is pretty wet. Mm -hmm. And so by adding that witness to his vocal mic, everything that comes through his vocal mic gets wet. And since he doesn't use the vocal mic very closely, lots of things come through his vocal mic. And so it just, as he goes, as he describes it, it gets all messy. And so messy equals not very clear and distinct. Makes sense. And he, he's very frustrated by that. And so the most recent time he came out the front the house, he's like, man, it sounds great out here. I just want it to sound that way on stage. So we got into a long discussion about why it sounds that way on stage and everything, but that I was like, but that's Will. Will's the greatest monitor guy going. He's been doing this gig for 10 years and, and nailing it. Every, every show is fantastic. I just say, you oh, know, that's between Will and you. He'll fix that for you. And he'll come up with a solution if you want it to sound better on stage, but I'm glad that you like it sound, how it sounds out here. Sure. Then we had an, another recent uh, episode or another recent comment that he made that you could maybe glean some knowledge from is he likes to use playback with the band. So he'll have a track that's maybe a loop or maybe it's a full track uh, playing along with the band, uh, even at the very least, just to get the band to play a certain way, even if we don't hear it that loudly in the audience. So the balance between the track and the live band is key. Uh, and that's one of the things we work on pretty thoroughly when he's standing next to me. He goes, well, what's happening on the track? What's happening with the band? Let's analyze this and let's get the balance right between the track and the band. And so recently we had one where he's, uh, he goes, let me hear it without the band for a second. Go, oh, there you go. That's what I want it to sound like. He's like, just turn the band off for this song. He's like the band. And it wasn't like the band was doing anything wrong. It was just because of the nature of playing along with the track, gonna be a little flaming going sure. on. And there's going to be a little lack of tightness. And he sensed that minute lack of tightness. It was only the third time the band had played the song. So maybe it was less tight than it would be after they played it a few more times. But the point is he sensed that lack of tightness as it sounding again, messy. Because he was like, oh, as soon as you turn the band off, oh, it's beautiful. it sounds like the way I want it to sound. So I was like, okay, we'll try that. Now we turned that around in a few days later. And we played the band only and not the track. And he's like, oh, that's great. Because they had they had learned to play the song better by then. And the point is that he's very sensitive to small changes. And it wasn't like we were making major changes. And it wasn't like the band was doing anything wrong. But the, he's very sensitive to small changes. Those changes will... Make him either very unhappy or very happy, sure. and the changes could be something as simple as I'm not hearing what Joey's doing. Joey's playing the bells. You play your part, Joey, and he'll play the part. They go, "Oh, I need to hear that." <laughs> That's a very common thing. That's a very common thing because that that whatever that is, is making it or breaking it for him for that part of the song. That more often than not is the key to those conversations. Is he lets me know what those key elements are so that he gets the musical picture to the audience that he wants okay. the audience to get because the because he's really interested in making it just so.
1: Peter Brandon says, what do you like to use for vocal effects?
0: <laughs> Reverb, of course, no, <laughs> but I'm a big fan of Lexicon and TC Reverbs personally. And for Barry Mallow, Lexicon is where it's at. Um, it's just It just has a certain sound to it and a, a vocal plate has everything he describes so that seems to be working well so for years on barry mental i used the lexicon pcm 70 in fact when i started on the gig i was handed a rack of yamaha spx 900 900 spx 900s and they sounded the way they sounded and i was like i don't think they are gonna do what he's talking about he was talking about how great he likes the reverb to sound and stuff uh so i was like can you give me a rack of PCM 70s instead? So they swapped out my lexicon Yamahas for my lexicons. And I went with the PCM 70s for many years. That kept him happy in terms of the effects on the band and on the singers and on the drums. I had a 224 XL for the drums alone. That was really great. And then I went to work for Julio and I walked into the Julio situation and they said, here's your vocal reverb. Don't change it from that preset. That preset is the one we want. And it was the uh, gold plate on a 5000 and i went wow that reverb really does sound great i got to try that on barry manilow too so at that point i adopted m5000 on barry manilow instead of the pcm 70 and it was fantastic for many years the tc and the m and the uh, lexicon i should say seem to have the sounds that i that he likes generally plates for the vocals and halls and maybe sometimes plates for the band and but vocal reverb is key i know Pete. Brennan, who was asking that question, and he does Paul Anka's for the house these days. Oh, and monitors. And he, uh, when I went to see him doing that show a while back, uh, he was using a much fuller sounding reverb than I that I'm accustomed to using with Barry Manilow. But different artists have different preferences in terms of the sound of the reverb, and EQing the return to sound the way they want it to sound is key to and for that matter setting the parameters so that it works the way they want it to work is key being successful in terms of pleasing the artist
1: so greg mcveigh says ask him about having to do a sound on sound bit in <laughs> concert when he was touring with barry manila do you know what he's talking about is there a tour
0: is there a i know exactly okay. what he's talking about because in that book that uh, that i showed you the clive young book i think it's called oh shit i'm sorry i forget the name of the clive young book but the clive young wrote a book about a whole bunch of different show performers at the time and the, and doing sound for them the story he he wrote about Barry is really not interested in pulling the curtain back in other words he believes thoroughly in the wizard of oz and keeping <laughs> the magic for the audience you know uh, crank it a, up. Uh, he wants to Yeah, crank it up. That's the book. So there's a written story of what I'm going to tell you in there. But the the point is that he likes to keep it very magical for the audience. He doesn't want the audience to know that there's a crew or a lighting system or a sound system. It's just the magic of Barry Manilow on stage, and that magic is going to make them happy, is the idea. So he was like, how can I possibly use some recorded vocals of my own voice without explaining to the audience first what I'm doing. So I'll explain to the audience first. And I remember him calling me up on the phone about this. He says, I want to do this bit where I explain to the audience what multi-tracking is basically. And and then I will play the recording of my voice and they will get it that it's me, but recorded. And I won't be pulling the curtain back. I won't be exposing too much, but just enough so that, that it's magical for the audience. And it was a great bit. So we designed this bit where I said, how are we going to do that? Or are we going to literally record you every night and then play you back and, and then play you back again? Or what, how do you want to do it? He said, well, I can do it the same every time. So why don't we use a recording that we make at the beginning and then you'll, and he says, I'll have a tape deck there. So we set up a reel-to-reel tape deck next to his little piano. So he had a little keyboard and a tape deck. He pushes a button on the tape deck. It records him. He, and so the magic is that he pushes the button. It records him singing, whatever he sings. He records it on the tape deck and then he hits rewind. He rewinds it and he goes, now I'm going to play that back and I'm going to sing along with it. And so he hits rewind. Then he hits play again. Now, when he hits played that time, it's actually starting my mini disc deck at front of house. And it's playing that recording that we made months ago. He goes, see that that's, and now I'm singing along with that. And if I do it again, I think he did it like two times or something. He recorded and then he recorded again. And he showed the audience that it could be him, but him recorded. And then he launches into this song that has like six of him and he, he like, what he moves around the stage and there are six of him in different places on the stage and it was very magical because he's letting the audience in on a little magic. And he's doing the magic at the same time. It was very cool. Guy is like the epitome of entertaining. He just wants to entertain the audience. So that was our little bit where we used the mini disc playback and a reel-to-reel deck with a push button on it. I think the, what the push button was wired to hit play. It was like not one of the buttons on the deck itself, but it hit play on the deck as well as on my mini disc deck. So that it looked like when he hit that play button, it started the reel-to-reel deck plus it started my mini disc deck. It played the sample. It was great. These days we would do it much differently, I'm sure, but it that was the way we did it back in the, whenever that was mid nineties or something. Sure, you made it and work. so it was a very cool little bit about showing the audience what sound on sound is what he called it, but it was multi-tracking vocals and then playing the, uh, recording of his six vocals at him. It was cool.
1: There's another question from Peter Brennan. How do you approach mixing monitors from front of house with certain artists? And I said, any specific challenges there? And he just mentioned gain structure. So I don't know if you have anything to say about mixing monitors from front of
0: house. He adopted the Paul Anka setup, which which has been for years mixing monitors from front of house for Paul. And that was done a certain way back in the 80s when I worked for Paul. And it's done a little bit differently now, but basically the same speaker configuration now that it was done back then. What Artie, who was Paul's production manager when I started, what Artie taught me was you basically want to give him a really good band mix on stage, just like band mix that's going through the house system, but it's on a separate bus. So it's, you have control over where it appears and then you image it upstage. So it feels like it's coming from the band. You had upstage and downstage side fills and he would. Say favor the band in the upstage side fills so that it's uh, sounds like it's coming from the band, even though it's coming from the speakers. And then the vocal was the key, though. Already had this method that worked perfectly for reverb in the monitors. So Paul wants lots of reverb in his monitors on his vocal, of course. The trick was, how do we get the vocal? You've done monitors from front of house where you're on an analog console where you don't have extra inputs and you don't have extra reverb units and you don't have all the things that we have with digital consoles today. But you got you've got one reverb unit for the voice, and you've got uh, one input channel for the mic and you want it to send you want to send that input channel to the monitors as well as to the house. So Artie came up with this method that he developed what he called the vocal mix channel. And that was the control that you would control the fader that you would ride in the audience for the audience, I should say. And then the other fader, which was the vocal input channel would go directly to the monitors and then also to the vocal mix channel and also to the reverb. The <laughs> point is you want to ride that reverb. You want to ride the reverb as he's singing, you know, it's got to be more as the song gets it moves on and it's got to be none when they, when he's talking and you've got to have it just the right amount all the time. By virtue of that vocal, and the reverb coming into a vocal mix channel for the house and going to the monitors directly from those two channels, the vocal and the reverb. Uh, First of all, the send to the reverb never changed. It was, there wasn't any post fader. If you do monitors now and you're sending pre fader to the monitors and you're sending post fader to the reverb, once you go off The nominal mark your reverb to to dry ratio is off is different than what you want it to be and so by virtue of Artie's method your ratio is never off it's always exactly what you want it to be because you send the vocal and the reverb to the stage you send the vocal and the reverb to the house and all you change ever is the vocal and reverb mix which is called the vocal mix to the audience and that's the only thing you ever change and and you change the court. you're riding the reverb level all the time, but you just, when you tune it, when you set it up during the day, you make sure that there's a little more reverb in the stage than there is in the house and everything's happy and it works fantastically. And I've used that with other artists that want reverb in their monitors and it works so great. I was like, Peter, are you doing that? No, Peter's not doing that <laughs> because Peter's just th- working on the premise that, Hey, when it's at that mark, it's good. And he's tries to stay right at that mark. And I think that's his premise anyway, but the point is that's a little more convoluted than people are willing to deal with these days, because these days you could say, you could do things like you could have two different reverbs, one for the house, one for the monitors, you could send Bray off the channel, however you want to do it. But anyway, the point is you could have two separate reverbs, one for the house, one for the monitors, and then you could have two separate return channels for those reverbs, but then controlled by one VCA so that they, when you bring it down for the house, you bring it down for the monitors, that's, that works. But in our, in the old days, we had one reverb and one return channel, and it was very simple. Thing inputs were at a premium and outputs were at a premium. So we had to be careful that we didn't overdo it, but there's uh, the, uh, the, um, Monitors for front of house is quite an art because not a lot of people do it, but one of the things that I like to do if I'm asked to do it, like I did, like Dave Cause opened for Barry Manilow for months, years ago. And I was like, okay, sure. I'll mix monitors from front of house, mix monitors for Dave Cause for front of house. I said, how many inputs are you? Oh, it's like 20 something. Great. Okay. So we got a PM, we got a PM5D, right? And how many mixes? Whatever it was, six mixes or six stereo mixes for their ears or something. It's a basically a small band. I was like, sure, I can mix that from front of house, as long as you're okay with it being what I would call stagnant, no changes during the show. On a PM5D, I put the band for the house on one layer, I put the band for the monitors on the other layer. And I took John Legend's sound guide, his name is John, last name is escaping me right now, but anyway, John hipped me to this plan where all the monitor channels are labeled in lowercase, all the front of house channels are labeled in uppercase. So right away you're on the right layer. If you're, if you see the labeling of the channels and that has been a very helpful hint, but anyway, the point is that have your totally separate set of channels for the monitors, separate set of channels for the house, go to town. The only thing that they have in common is the input trim. And so once you have the input trim set, go with it. And and that has been very successful. Even if you, um, even if I am doing a, a simple setup and I don't have that many extra channels, I have a few extra channels. I'll do that with the vocal input. I'll take the the lead vocal or all the vocals and put them on a separate on separate channels so for the monitors so that those channels can have whatever eq they want and it doesn't affect the house and the house doesn't affect them and have their own reverbs and different things like that so that it's all separate because you never know what the artist is going to want. And I mean, separate is, is way great. It's, that's the advantage of digital consoles in the analog console days. We would have never done that because it would be like, what you want to take up sure, half the console out just a for channel the monitors. Yeah. It's so luxurious these days because like on a PM4000, for example, if you want to do monitors from a PM4000, I think that when you went pre-fader on that, I think it was by default. It was pre-eq also so you had just flat eq on all the monitors it was kind of funky i think it followed the high pass and then you could moving an internal jumper you could change it a bit or something but it was just nothing like what we have now it's so great what we have now so anyway keeping it separate is key and then using Artie's reverb method it still works today on a digital console that that system where one fader controls the return and then you use a vocal mix to the house works fantastic
1: Jonathan Winkler says, which number were you in the calendar year of Front of House Guys on Anita Baker? When I joined, I was 35. The 35th monitor guy, that calendar year, it was May. She only worked on Fridays and Saturdays. Wow.
0: May 35. Wow, that's amazing. 35th monitor guy. The era that I worked for Anita Baker, it wasn't that way. We had, yeah, we might have had a couple monitor guys, but we first of all, the tour was sponsored by Meyer Sound. So Meyer Sound was very involved in the in the tour and making sure that she was happy. They made sure we had all the right Meyer sound equipment. They had Meyer representatives. Jamie Anderson was there. He was he worked for Meyer at the time. And Mark Johnson worked for Meyer at the time. And they were there at many of the shows just to make sure she was happy and just to make sure everything was going well. And they had a Meyer sound system that she loved. And she had Meyer wedges, and then she had some ear, ear monitors. It was the early days of ear monitors kind of, but in fact, it was, uh, if I recall, it was Sonic's ears and the stereo separation wasn't so great on those ears. And we we try, I remember (laughs) fabricating a, an adapter because you had a, on the transmitter and the receiver, you had a mono or stereo switch the quality in mono was so much better and the isolation, separation between left and right was so much better in mono. So we took two transmitters, both set them both to mono, two receivers set in both to mono. I made a little adapter that took the left off one receiver and the right off the other receiver to a little connector for her ear monitors. And she's like, yeah, I don't know, I'm not hearing the difference okay, we're not going to bother with that then, but, but we heard the difference because the, the isolation was so much better. But my point of that era that we were working in was very different than when you worked for Jonathan, sorry, but I, I, for one thing, I was the only front of house guy and I quit before I got (laughs) fired. Because I quit, to, I quit to go work for go work for Julio Iglesias mm-hmm. because we were we were going on like a month long break, and I was like, "Well, I'll just do this Julio gig for a little while," and then the Julio gig turned into like many months. So I said, "You know what? I'm not going to go back and work with Anita. I'm just going to continue with Julio because it's a lot more work." And so I had the opportunity to stop working for her before she before I was actually fired. And I mean, don't get me wrong; she was not 100 percent logical in all her comments and requests, but she was self, she was the self-proclaimed crazy lady. She called herself crazy and she knew that she was being extra sensitive to the sound. And she, after that, I heard that she, this was probably a mistake, but I heard that she went to full sail and learned as much as she could about sound so that she could uh, be clear in describing what (laughs) she was hearing that was bothering her. So I heard it got worse after that, but anyway, she's just very sensitive to sound differences and I'm sure you've heard the stories. She doesn't want anybody changing it once it's set. She's like, that's great. Just leave it alone. The fact that she moves to a different place on stage and it sounds different because the house system is reflecting off the venue differently from that in that position on stage or whatever the difference is, she's just not willing to accept that it's not somebody messing with her and changing some settings or something. It's too bad because it's, you know, she's her own worst mm. enemy in that way. But she was just so sweet. I can tell you, in fact, you know what, Jonathan, she was so sweet to me. She had every reason to fire me. I don't know if I, you've heard this story before, but it's one of my favorite stories about an artist, and in particular her, because of her reputation. She has this reputation for firing people like crazy. In December of whatever year that was, 1994 or something, we're playing at the Universal Amphitheater for like five nights. Uh, Jamie Anderson was my sim guy. So if that tells you how cool it must have sounded, right? Because Jamie Anderson is the king of system EQing, right? Anyway, he was the sim guy because we had a sim guy. But, oh, that's what it was. I, I The sim guy was David Dave Lawler. And Dave Lawler was also working for Barry Manilow at the time doing monitors. And he said, well, I'm going to go work for Barry Manilow that week because if you should also, but if you leave, she'll really have a cow. If I leave, we can get Jamie to cover for me. Anyway, point is that Dave Lawler couldn't make it that week. So Jamie Anderson filled in for him at the Universal Amphitheater. We had our beautiful Meyer rig, MSL fives and stuff. It, was, it sounded amazing, and uh, Jamie made sure of it. A- and the, we did, what, maybe two shows, and then a review came out in the LA Times. And the review was all about how bad it sounded oh, no. at the Universal Amphitheater. It was a review in a major publication, the LA Times. i got to find it one of these days. But anyway, I think they called her Nine Inch Nails uh, oh, Baker Jesus. or something like that because they said it was so loud, it was so... It was, Just going on and on about how bad the sound was. I, you know, I thought for sure I'm going to get fired when I go to the gig tonight because any artist in their right mind would fire their sound guy after a review like that. But I went to the gig and I got myself set up and I was ready to go. And I go down, I see that she's down on stage, just getting comfortable with the stage. And I run down there and, hi, how's it going? I'm really sorry about that review. And she's like, oh, what review? I said, the one in the LA Times. She said, oh, Don't worry about it you know my reviewers these are my reviewers and she points to the front row of seats and says these are my reviewers and they are having the greatest time and it's fantastic you know reviewers suck or something like that i was like oh my god that's fantastic you know especially from her more so than ever from her because she was known for firing people and so i didn't get fired and not only that she kept me working after such a bad review I, i was pretty appreciative of that because that was pretty crazy and oh and by the way i called the reviewer and i somehow had the balls to call the reviewer and say were you at the same concert that i was at because it didn't sound bad to me i thought you were gonna say say, where were you
1: sitting and what did you hear
0: (laughs) (laughs) no i might have said that for all i know yeah i might have said that but i said what what night did you go it's just kind of playing dumb right and because i was like i went to that concert and it was sounded great and he said well you know i just would have liked to have heard her voice more that's all I was like, oh, "Oh, too bad you couldn't say that in the review (laughs) because again, they want to hear the voice more. And I was trying to do that thing where I was tucking the voice into the mix and it was tucked in too much maybe for his taste. And so I was like, oh, geez, that's a real bummer because I'm actually the guy that controlled the sound and I'm just lucky that I didn't get fired from your review, but I'm actually the guy that you should be yelling at, (laughs) not Anita Baker. It was pretty interesting. But anyway, so she was super nice to all of us. And I think she, she might've started getting a little ornery towards the end of our few months of touring, but she generally didn't fire anybody that tour for some reason. I'm not sure why. It was interesting to her and she was challenging to work with and always had different requests, but didn't fire anybody like that when Jonathan worked for her apparently wow 35 people in May by May wow that's insane I'm sure you've heard the stories about I think it was uh, I can't remember who it was but a monitor guy that was a really really good monitor guy and he didn't like her mentioning him by name so he, he made a deal with her or her management or something every time you mention my name that's a hundred dollars extra on my bill. <laughs> So he got a lot of extra money because of <laughs> her mentioning his name. It was, I, I thought that was a, an interesting approach, you know?
1: Well, Ken, I think this is a, a great story to take us out on. So it's been really great talking to you. And thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live.
0: Well, thanks for having me. I, I always love talking to you, Nathan. It's always invigorating to hear, uh, you know, reactions to my crazy stories. <laughs> <laughs> I put it, I'll put it out there. If anybody knows any... Uh, Artists that are looking for a sound guy like me, that somebody that can deal with the cranky artists that are really particular about how they want it to sound and is going to be working for the next 5, 10 years. I'd love to keep working for the next 5, 10 years. And I have a feeling Barry Mantle is going to retire pretty soon. So when he retires, I'd like to hear about those other, those other artists that I might be successful Sure, with. that
1: sounds great. And what's the best way for people to reach out to you?
0: Um, just probably my website, newmanaudio.com, N-E-W-M-A-N-A-U-D-I-O.com.
1: Sound design.